Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Family Church in Ohioville, Pennsylvania. We pray you are challenged in your walk with the Lord through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly Family Church or to subscribe to our free podcasts, please visit us on the web at cafamily.net. Praise God. Well, at this time, we'd like to get into the study of God's Word. As you know, this is what we would call Palm Sunday. And so I'm going to talk to you this morning about the triumphal entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem uh, during that last week, which is called the week of his passion. So first of all, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege this morning of studying your word together and knowing that it's not just intellectually learned, but spiritually perceived and discerned. We ask your Holy Spirit to anoint our ears to hear it, our minds to be open to it, hearts to receive it and understand it. We thank you for changing us by it from glory to glory, that we might conform to the very image of Jesus and become that for which is apprehended each and every one of us. That we might carry out the purpose of your will, dear Father God, in proclaiming Jesus to a lost and needy world. Father, I thank you for utterance in the Holy Ghost and making my tongue as a pen of a ready writer to proclaim truth with power and demonstration that penetrates our very souls and challenges us in each and every way. We'll give you all the glory for all that's done in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God and amen. First of all, I want to begin by sharing with you that there are about 250 events recorded in the New Testament with regard to the life of Jesus as he walked here upon the earth. Now, we understand that if... Everything was written. The world could not contain the books, but these things were written for us to know and believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. But of all those 250 events, we understand that only a few of those events are recorded in all four Gospels. And what that means is these are four, or these are certain things the four Gospel writers believe that were extremely important for us to understand and know about. And of course, one of which was the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on that last week of his Passion. It was so important to John, the writer of the Gospel of John, that over half of his book was talking about the last week of Jesus' life. Of course, he also talked about the uh, triumphal entry. Well, before I even look at that, I want to share with you something that's important for us all to know. We understand that Jesus is revealed to us in seven feast days of the Jewish people, his redemptive plan. We start with the Passover. And the Passover is the crucifixion of Christ when the Lamb is slain. And then secondly, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is God dealing with the sin problem, making Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. All this took place in this first week. And then also we have the first fruits, which is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So in the first week that we call this beginning with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, we see three of the four spring feast days fulfilled in Christ. And that's important because it helps us understand that the fulfillment of Scripture took place in the life of Jesus. Of course, after his resurrection, and 50 days later, we understand that Pentecost took place, which is the fourth spring feast day. And that's when Jesus ascended on high, sat down, finished his work, and sent the Holy Ghost to take his place as he said he would to be our comforter, counselor, helper, advocate, intercessor, strengthener, and standby. And so we know that has already taken place. Now, after that, of course, comes summertime. Summertime is a time of seed, time, and harvest. We talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we reach out and let people know it's the harvest season. 
come to Christ and receive salvation that he provided for you. After the summertime season takes place comes the fall feasts. The last three fall feasts begins with the rapture of the church. When the church is taken out of here, the graves are open. The dead in Christ rise. We that are alive are changed. We're caught up. We meet him in the air. We go off to be with the Lord for those seven years of tribulation here upon this earth. And then we come back with him to fight against all the armies of Israel. But that is the Feast of Trumpets will take place. And I think this year it's in October, October the 3rd or around there. After that comes the atonement. Now, a little catchy here. When it comes to the atonement, as far as we are concerned, Messianic Jews and all Gentiles that are saved, the born-again church, the atonement has already taken place. And that puzzled me some time ago, but then I realized this is the truth. The truth is this. The Orthodox Jew has not accepted the blood of Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for sin. And so that's going to take place after the uh, trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets. And at the end of seven years, when Jesus comes back with the armies of heaven and defends Israel in the battle of Armageddon, then we understand that's when the Orthodox Jew will accept the blood of Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for their sin. And so therefore, for them, that's when that atonement takes place. But for us, it's already taken place. And we're washed in the blood and we thank God that redemption has already been provided for and obtained. And then finally, we have the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the last one, the seventh of the, seventh of the seven feast days. And that's when God tabernacles on earth with men. And remember, 1,000 years, Jesus will reign upon this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he'll bring perfect peace to the earth. God tabernacling with man on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So that's just an introduction to some of the things that we need to understand. Now, the triumphal entry. I want to make some comparisons. And first of all, I want us to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 13. This is from the New Living Translation. And number one, I want to compare Jesus to religion. At this time, they took palm branches, went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hell to the king of Israel. As you know, the Jews were required once every year to make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The celebration of the Passover was remembering their deliverance from Egyptian bondage way back in the day. And how God brought them out and delivered them with a mighty hand. They were remind themselves of that over and over and over again. As I said earlier, the Passover is the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So every year they have to go back and they have to go uh, and perform the same rituals, same prayers, offerings, and so on and so forth. But this year, as you just read with me, it's different. Something different is taking place. The people are now gravitating towards Jesus and they're shouting, Hosanna, save us now. In other words, they were saying, give us what our religion over all these years has not been able to give us. We're looking for it in you now. You see, to them, Jesus came as a breath of fresh air, doing things that the others could never do. The common people gladly gravitated toward him. Why? Because he met them where they lived. He helped them. He blessed them. He healed them. He delivered them. So many miracles and signs and waters took place and it made such a difference in their lives. He fed them as he multiplied food. And the list goes on and on about the wonderful things that Jesus did when he walked upon the earth. So the common people gladly accepted him and received him and they began to exalt him as their Messiah and King of Kings. Look in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 37, what it says. 
David therefore himself called him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Oh, they were so excited about the message that Jesus brought, the miracles that he did, that they gladly gravitated toward him as he walked upon the earth. But this caused much friction between the Jews or the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the religious leaders and Jesus. As a matter of fact, look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. There was friction between what Jesus was saying and the law or the Jewish system that was taking place at the time. Jesus brought a different perspective, and the religious leaders didn't like it. But notice what Jesus says here. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And that's true. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, notice now Jesus says, but I'm telling you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And many things like this that Jesus taught among the people. And of course, the common people gladly heard it. But the religious leaders were upset with him and frustrated with him. As a matter of fact, if you take the time to read Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, over and over and over again, Jesus called these leaders hypocrites. Read it for yourself and you'll see many, many times he called them hypocrites. You see, his teachings appealed to sinners, but his teachings had no impact upon these religious leaders. They were absolutely upset with him as a result of his teaching. Well, why did the common people navigate towards Jesus or gravitate towards Jesus? Some reasons why. Number one, religion emphasized the outward working of a man, but Jesus appealed to the heart of people. He was concerned what's on the inside of a person, not the outside. He understood and he knew that in the flesh we could never, ever please God. But he's looking for a heart that is right, the motivation of the heart. And so he appealed to the heart of the people. Religion emphasized negative things, but Jesus emphasized positive things. He made declarations and comments to lift people's spirit and help them rise up to higher places. He forgave those that needed to be forgiven. He delivered those that needed to be delivered. He encouraged them that needed to be encouraged. And as a result, people appreciated it. Religion also puts up walls. But Jesus doesn't put up walls. He tears down walls. Look in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. And beginning at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. He is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of perdition between us. Perdition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, now notice, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. And he's talking about the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Of course, the Jews had their way, the Gentiles had their way. But Christ said, I've come to break down that middle wall of partition. I've come to create one new man in himself. Both Jew and Gentile being born again, coming together, 
really constituting and making up the body of Christ, the church as we know it today. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer male nor female, bond or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Jesus came to tear down walls and bring people together in peace. Also, religion says, work your way to God. But Jesus says, I am the way to God. Just deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And as a result, you'll find your way to God. Religion also says, these are the things we must do. But Jesus says, I've already done those things for you. Just accept it, just believe it, and just walk in the light of it. The work's already been done. Then look at John's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 19. Jesus was more appealing to all the common people of the day than religion. They were more attracted to him than religion because he gave them something. He invested something in their lives. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. Boy, they were troubled, weren't they? They're all gravitating toward him. Is his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And they're all gravitating toward him. They're exalting him. They're praising him as king of, the, of Israel, of the Jews, and as the Messiah. And they were troubled by it. They're laying down their cloaks and so on before them, hollering out, Hosanna, save us now. All their confidence was in him because of the things that he did for them. So number two, I want to share with you about the comparison between Scripture and opinion. Scripture and opinion. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, let's begin at verse 14. Let's see what it says from the New Living Translation of the Bible. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Notice here, there were a lot of comments and opinions made about Jesus when he walked upon the earth. There were those that uh, had the opinion that he was John the Baptist, raised up from the dead. They believed that he might be Elijah the prophet who had come, as the scriptures taught. Then they went on to say that he might be Jeremiah, he might be Isaiah, or one of the other prophets. Of course, then you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and what they said was he's Beelzebub because he's the prince of the devils, and he cast out devils by the power of Beelzebub. So they all had their different opinions as to who Jesus was and their different views. But John is not looking at opinions. John is quoting scripture. As a matter of fact, look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is from the New Living Testament. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's coat. So in other words, what he's doing is quoting scripture and opening up their eyes to see this is the fulfillment of scripture. What you're seeing before your eyes as Jesus is entering in on this cult into Jerusalem is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. He is coming in just as it was prophesied, just as it was said. He's coming this time to draw attention to himself. If you recall throughout his entire earthly ministry... He did miracles and said, go tell nobody, tell no man, see that no man knows it. Don't talk about it because he didn't want to jeopardize his effectiveness in ministry. But now he doesn't hold back. 
All this has changed. He's coming in in the fulfillment of scripture, riding on this donkey's coat to identify himself as the king of Israel and as the Messiah of promise. And he's making a boast of it at this time before all the people. And what are the people doing? They're shouting their praises unto him. They're identifying him as the Lamb of God. Here's something that's very important also to understand. During this time, this last week before his death and burial and resurrection and all, we understand that they all went back to Jerusalem and we also understand that there were the money changes that were in the temple, but they're basically robbing the people, charging them more for turtle doves and sacrificial uh, animals and that sort of thing. But during this time, as Jesus is entering in as the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, all these lambs are being inspected by all the priests to determine whether or not they had any flaws or blemishes. They had to be without spot and blemish to be offered up as a sacrifice to the Lord. While they're scrutinizing all these particular lambs as they're going through in the motions of it all, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is entering into Jerusalem to be scrutinized, to be found innocent without spot and without blemish, to be judged falsely, and then finally to be crucified before rising from the dead on the third day. So we see here the fulfillment of Scripture and prophecy in the life of Jesus as he's entering in. And if they had any kind of biblical knowledge whatsoever, they would have understood this is exactly what's happening before our eyes. The blood of the, all these sacrificial animals could never take away sin. That's an impossibility. But here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Messiah. He proved his identity by all the wonderful things that he did. And there's no denying it. And if they knew scripture, they would have understood exactly what was taking place right before their very eyes. So Jesus comes in as a sacrificial lamb, the Messiah and the king. And he publicizes it and makes it known to all the people. The next thing we see is that there's a spreading of the cloaks. Look at Luke's gospel, chapter 19, verses 35 and 36. And once again, this is from the New Living Translation. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. And he rode along the crowd spread. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And so if you can vision this, if you can see this, as I said earlier in that little comment about the red carpet, we see when all these movie stars get together and they come during the time of the Oscars or the Grammys or whatever, they roll out the red carpet with all this pomp and circumstance as if there's somebody so special that they've got to have this kind of treatment. Let me tell you something. When they threw their cloaks on the ground for Jesus, it was a whole lot better than the red carpet. Jesus came as their Messiah and King. They were honoring him as their King. They recognized him as their Messiah and King. And they were rolling out the red carpet in their day for Jesus as he's making his way into Jerusalem. Now we understand that uh, we give honor to whom honor is due. But did Jesus receive the honor that was due him? For a short time he did as they exalted him and praised him. But that didn't last very long. For the very ones that shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, in a few days would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Notice the praise of the people that were there. Look in Luke's gospel, once again, chapter 19. Look at verses 37 and 38. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a voice, with a loud voice for all the mighty works 
that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they're chanting out all these praises. And what he's doing is he's singling out one verse from Psalm 118, verse 26, and he quotes it right here when he says this. Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord, we have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. So once again, John is referring to the fact that what's happening right now is a fulfillment of Scripture. It's not my opinion. It's the fulfillment of Scripture. He's being praised and worshipped as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as the Messiah of the Jewish people. And he's being honored during this time because that's who he is. Look at the next verses in Luke 19, verses 39 and 40. The religious leaders are very upset with Jesus, and he, they want him to stop all this praise and worship, cause it to end. And here's what they say. Some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. You see... They were shouting out messianic phrases as they were worshiping Jesus as he's riding on the donkey into the town. And the leaders could not tolerate this. I'm telling you, they were beside themselves. So they appealed to him. Tell them to stop exalting you as their Messiah, saying that you're their king. You know this isn't right for you to receive that kind of praise from, from all these people. And what does Jesus say? Mm -mm. You see, look at Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 12. The people understood the fact that inanimate ob objects sometimes refer to as praising God. Look what it says. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So they understood that. And he is saying, look, the stones will cry out if they don't cry out. In other words, all creation itself will cry out if they don't cry out. I remember when our son Andrew was telling us his testimony about being in heaven. And he talked about how even inanimate objects like trees and flowers worship God. Can't wait to get there and find out how all this works. But you know what? Praise God. I believe what he's saying is true. It'd be nice if all these puppets here I'm talking to would... Maybe respond a little bit, but that's not happening just yet. Maybe someday the anointing will come upon them. Amen? Anyhow, look in the book of uh, Habakkuk. The Pharisees were highly offended because Jesus said the rocks and stones will cry out. I'm not going to silence them. Now, here's the history of that. In Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 11. For the stones shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. And what he's saying is this. This is something that they understood back then. The Jews knew that mute stones could bear witness to sin. They understood that. That's what that was written for. You ever have, have someone say this expression? I like to be a fly on the wall to find out what's going on, what's being said. We've said that before. Well, he's talking about the same similar thing. The walls would hear. The stones would witness sin taking place in the camp and they understood that phrase well listen jesus knew that and so he says if they don't praise me they'll be committing the sin 
of not knowing and acknowledging who I am. Other times, he didn't want anything from men. But this time, his work is done. He's about to go to the cross. He's going to suffer and die. It's time to reveal who he is. He's at the right place at the right time at the right hour. And God wants him to reveal who he is. And he does right there. And all that was connected with his triumphal entry. And these people are praising him, exalting him, and magnifying him. And he says, if they do not do it, it's sin on their part. And the rocks and stones will testify to it. They will cry out in their place. Oh, my brother and my sister, don't let a rock or a stone cry out in your place. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the mighty one of Israel. He is the Lamb of God that was slain for us. And he deserves all the praise and the honor and the glory that we could possibly give him. Don't let the stones take your place. So what is John doing? He is comparing Scripture to the opinions of men. You can say what you want. You think about him. That's okay. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to give you chapter and verse. And I'm going to show you, make it very plain before you, that Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies and they make, all they make him the Messiah and the King of Israel. Number three in my final point, following Jesus compared to observing Jesus. Following Jesus compared to just observing Jesus. John mentions four different groups of people that were among them in that crowd that day. The first group is found in John 12 and verse 16. Let's read it. These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Notice these are called disciples at the beginning of the verse. The disciples didn't understand it at first. So the first group, we have disciples. These are the ones that were truly walking with Jesus and truly wanted to know the truth. They stood by his side through thick and thin, and they were there. Yes, they were challenged along the way, but it pans out that they were the ones that really walked with Jesus. The second group is found in, group, in uh, verse 17. Let's read it. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. So now we have another group. This group is there because they saw him raise Lazarus, who was dead four days from the grave. And because they witnessed that, they saw that, they had to believe he's the Messiah. There's nobody that can do anything like this. This isn't just like something that possibly maybe the person wasn't dead. This man was dead for four days. His body began to decay. And when Jesus got there to the grave site and said, roll away the stone, they heard them respond by saying, by this time, he stinks or he's decaying. They knew that. They knew he was wrapped in grave clothes. They understood that. But then they heard Jesus say something probably peculiar to them. Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, but I know that thou hast, you hear me always. What was he referring to? When he first got the wind that Lazarus was dying, he made this declaration of faith. He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, I must work the works of him that sent me. So Jesus, we understand, made a declaration of faith and saying, he is, this is not unto death. And even though along the way he died, his disciples said he's asleep, but they said, no, he's dead. He knew it wasn't the end. And finally, when he got there, 
And he said, Father, I know you heard me when I said, this is not unto death. But I thank you for hearing me. But I'm saying it not because I doubt it. But all these people that are here will know that you sent me. And he stood by the gravesite, the tomb of Lazarus, with the stone rolled away. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth bound in grave clothes. Sometimes people wonder why did he just come free from the grave clothes? Because they might think it's an imposter. He came bound in the same grave clothes. And he told his disciples, loose him and let him go. So you can see it's the same person that you put in there. So imagine a miracle. These were eyewitnesses to that miracle. They saw what took place before their eyes. And they believed, we're told, they believed. The next group is found in verse 18. These are the ones that came because they heard the testimony of the ones that were eyewitnesses. For this cause, the people also met him. For they that heard that he had done this miracle. So they just heard it. They didn't see it, but they heard it. Can you imagine going home and telling your friends, family members, maybe work associates? I just witnessed a man who was dead for four days, whose body was decaying, being raised from the dead by Jesus of Nazareth. I just saw it with my own two eyes. And I'm sure there were some that said, oh, I don't believe that. But others said, I got to see this. This is amazing. Are you sure? I, absolutely. I was there when they did it. I saw him bound up with grave clothes. I witnessed it. Well, I'm going on your testimony. I'm going to come and see him because he's got to be the Messiah. He's got to be the king of Israel. And of course, they went down there and there they were among the crowd. And what are they doing? Throwing down their cloaks. And what are they doing? Worshiping and praising him as a Messiah. Then you've got in verse 19, the last group. And this is called the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and all that. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. So now we have the religious people that are beside themselves. They don't know what to do. The world is going after this Messiah. They think he's the Messiah. And we know different. He can't be the Messiah because of this and because of that. We're the religious leaders. So we've got four different groups of people, eyewitnesses there. Some of them aren't witnesses to the same event. They see Jesus coming in to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, being exalted as the king of glory, as the Messiah, and so on. And these individuals have different opinions and different views of Jesus. And that's part of my last point. Look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 44. And let's take this to heart, every single one of us. Picture yourself going back at that particular time. And sometimes it's hard for us to do this. But you place yourself there in midst of all that. You wonder what they were thinking. We're looking at it from this perspective here. What if something happened right now that was a fulfillment of prophecy or scripture? Would we understand it? Would we see it? Would we know it? Well, back then, there they were. Right before their eyes, Scripture is being fulfilled. Prophecy is being fulfilled. The Messiah is actually coming into Jerusalem on this triumphal entry, beginning the Passion Week of our Lord, the week of Passover. He's coming in. They're exalting Him as the King of glory. Look at this. And they shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. This is right after Jesus wept 
over Jerusalem and said, Oh my goodness, can't you see who I am? Don't you know who I am? And so he's crying out and said, Look, because you have not understood or known the time of your visitation, you're going to lose it all. Your temple is going to be brought down to the ground. You're going to be under divine judgment. You've rejected your Messiah. The one you've been crying out for all these years. Why? Because he didn't look like the person you wanted him to be. He didn't act like the person you wanted him to be. He didn't fit your mold as to what you thought or who you thought he should be. So as a result, they didn't know the time of their visitation and they lost out. And they lost out big time. There were some that believed in him, but the masses of the multitudes that were there, even the eyewitnesses that saw Lazarus raised from the dead, not too, long, too much longer down the road, the ones that went with them, because they heard the testimony, and these Pharisees all cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Think about it. They didn't know the time of their visitation. Well, Jesus wept, and I'm sure he's weeping even now over those that don't recognize that this is your time of visitation. You know, when I first came to Christ, it was because someone came to me and said, I need to make him my savior and be born again. I didn't understand it. I wasn't ready to understand that was the time of my visitation. But thank God he didn't give up on me. He kept sending other labors of love to me and letting me know, look, this is your time of visitation. Second person I sent to you to let you know you must be born again. I had a pretty hard, stubborn head. And it took me even a while after that to really come to Christ. But my father came along and as a result wrote out a sinner's prayer for me to say at one point in my life. And I looked at it and went over it and over it and over it. Of course, he shared other scriptures with me about the end times, about the rapture of the church and what would take place. I finally got to a place that I realized this is the time of my visitation. God has come to me in the person of the Holy Spirit. He is pricking my heart to let me know you must be born again to enter into my kingdom and so thank God my eyes were open and thank God I recognized the time of my visitation and thank God I made Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of my life and that I look different to all the people that I knew before absolutely they thought I was a lunatic they thought I was crazy they called me a Jesus freak and all this but you know what we all have an eternal destination that we have to look forward to whether we believe it or not and where we spend our eternity is going to be based on whether or not we see Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the Lord of all. The one who obtained eternal redemption for us. So I believe he wept over Jerusalem then, and he's weeping over people right now that reject him as Savior and Lord. I want to close by sharing these points with you. There are many in our society today, they think that they're nothing but an accident. I want you to know something, there are no accidents. If you're alive and breathing, you're no accident. Not at all. You have a divine origin. Your life came from the living God. He is the giver of all life. I understand we're talking about the virus. We're talking about COVID-19. We're talking about people losing their lives. But you know, sometimes I think people fail to realize the bigger truth. Millions of babies have been aborted already this year. Millions, not thousands but millions aborted this year. Why? I guess some think that they're just an accident. That life is meaningless. It has no import whatsoever. But I want you to know something. That's not true. Any human being conceived or alive 
is no accident. It's of divine origin. That life comes from the living God Almighty. Secondly, you might be thinking, well, my life's meaningless. Well, I want you to know your life is not meaningless. You have divine purpose. Even the Son of God Himself said, I came with a purpose to fulfill a destiny. I came to do the will of my Father. Each and every one of us, no matter what we think, what our mindset might be, your life is not meaningless. You have divine purpose. All that we've talked about here today is to help you in the fulfillment of your divine purpose. You'll find it in Christ, your Savior and Lord. Thirdly, and many people think this, death is not the end. Many people think that when I die, it's all over. That's not true. Death is not the end. You have a divine destination. In the mind of God, He wants you to be with Him in eternal glory. We understand that there's two places as far as our destination is concerned. There's a heaven to gain and there's a hell to shun. And every single one of us should understand this. You're not an accident. You have divine origin. Your life is meaningful, not meaningless. You have a divine purpose, a reason to live upon this earth to carry out the program that God has established for your life. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to do it or not, He has a design for you specifically, and He wants you to carry it out. Judas turned his back on that, and he did what he wanted to do, and many others have done the same thing, making shipwreck of their faith. And thirdly, no one will escape the fact that we have a divine destination. God's destination for us is in eternal glory. The devil wants us to go and be with him throughout eternity in a lake of fire, suffering throughout eternity. But I want you to know something. Jesus did something to change that. Period. So that we can all be with him in glory. It's up to us to recognize the fact that we have a divine destination. My closing question is, what group are we in? Are we among those like disciples? The true followers of Christ that will study the word of God, learn more and more to know the truth to make us free? Are we like those that witnessed a miracle and said, for a moment, yes, he must be the Messiah, but then the moment it got hard, when he called us to commitment, turned our back and walked away and said, crucify him. Or even those that were, Joseph just heard the ones that saw the eyewitnesses, heard that testimony. You see, they're a little bit down on the totem pole. And they said, well, I just heard about it. I didn't really see it. So is it really true? Are we among the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious people that said, you know, you got to do it this way. You got to do it that way. I'll do it my own way. Thank God we can be among the disciples. He said, if you stay in my word, you're my disciple indeed. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And so that's why it's important that we continue to meet, whether it's by live streaming. And I long for the day that we can meet together. But you know what? Nothing is more important than what you just heard this morning about your eternal destination. And we all should be shouting the praises of Almighty God and lifting up the person of Jesus Christ during this time that we celebrate not just his triumphal entry, that we celebrate the Passover, unleavened bread, the first fruits, him being raised from the dead. Thank God. You see, you put it all together. Here what you find that took place during this, what we call, week of his passion. He entered in to the praises of men, but it wasn't very long before he was falsely judged and abused harshly. Went to a cross where he suffered and died. And on that cross, it wasn't just the beating of the Roman lictor and all the people. No, it was God making him to be sin for us who knew no sin and all that that entails, which our eyes have never seen or ears have heard. Then dying on that cross and then descending in the uttermost parts of the earth, rising up on the third day, praise God. 
victorious over death, hell, and the grave. All this is what makes life possible for us in Christ so that we can have eternal glory with Him. I want to be among the disciples to understand that He took His blood to the high court of heaven and He obtained eternal redemption for us, every one of us. I want to be a part of that crowd. And when the going gets tough and there's challenges along the way, I'm not looking just to a miracle working Christ. I'm looking to a commitment calling Christ that says, I commit myself to you. I lay down my life for you. No matter how easy it is, no matter how hard it is, I'm going to serve you and walk with you all the days of my life. Deny myself of living independent of you. Take up my cross, submit my will to do your will, no matter what it means for me. And follow you means allow you to make me what you want me to be. I surrender my all to you, my life to you, my heart to you, and I will serve you all the days of my life. Beloved, it may be getting tough. It doesn't matter. We have a glorious future and a glorious end. And all this is going to pass someday. And Jesus will still be exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. Praise God. God bless you. And I thank you for joining us today. Thank God for your life.